So church, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. So I'm super excited. You know, we've been praying about where to go into the fall. You know, and, and our desire is always, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking to, uh, to give you necessarily words to live by. I'm not looking to give you, you know, um, motivational talks. My hope and desire for us is that we teach you, check, there it is. We teach you how to read the Bible. You know, that's our biggest desire because I can tell you a lot of things about a lot of things. And by the time you go home and you get in your time of devotion or you get in your own situation or your own issues, man, those things are going to be be gone from you. And it's only God's word that's truly going to sink in, that's going to lead God and direct us into all the spaces that we go. And so the way we like to preach and to teach is, is book by book. You know, occasionally we go thematic things. This summer we did the thematic kind of idea of God's name and what that means for us. But we're going to spend the next several months with a break here or there talking through the book of First Peter or the letter of First Peter. Peter writes to these churches in this area. So if you could, we're going to start off basically in Peter's welcome. But I think there's so much even here that as we understand the context of what's going on, how this speaks so clearly and directly to us this morning. So First Peter chapter 1, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you or we have Bibles in the back on the back table. I'd love for you to read along with us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Church, let's pray as we engage with God's Word. Father God, I just thank You for today. God, I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You that in the midst of all of our lives, Lord, wherever we are in fear and doubt and struggle, in the storms that we navigate, in the uncertainties ahead of us, Father God, I'm so thankful that You've given us your word, God, this, this, this light in the dark spaces of where we navigate. God, and I pray this morning that we lay down our humility. Lord, we lay down ourselves before you this morning, our pride. God, let us hear from you, be challenged by you in a way that we desperately need. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this book has a unique relatability that I think we can find that we may not see through all the books of the Bible. You know, um, there's a specific political climate, there's a specific state of the culture, and even its view of Christianity as a movement that we see in Peter's time here, as he writes in 64 AD, roughly, that he writes this in 2 Peter, as he's under house arrest for preaching and teaching the gospel. We see Peter kind of communicate to these churches. We see he's talking to several different regions and churches in this time, but all of these people kind of falling under the same experiences because they're all kind of within the context of the Roman Empire. And so the thing that's unique about Peter, and Brother Garen did a really good job last week of kind of laying some groundwork of who Peter is. You know, Peter was emotional. Peter was, you know, uh, unpredictable. Peter was passionate. And sometimes those passions and those emotions got him into trouble. You know, and, and sometimes they even drew him into sinful situations. Uh, and so, you know, but the thing about Peter is that Peter's name is mentioned more than any of the other apostles 
and any other person except for Jesus in the Bible. In the four Gospels. No one speaks as often as Peter. And Jesus spoke more about Peter than any other individual. And so why is that? You know, I truly believe that the reason that is, is because Peter, Peter was an outsider. Peter was an outsider. Peter was not a Jew. Remember, so the Jews were kind of God's chosen people leading up to the moment when Jesus comes and kind of opens the gates of who can be included in God's people. Now, obviously, all through the Old Testament, people outside of the Jews were welcomed in by faith in God and all those things. But this this really opened up when Jesus came because that was his desire, that that people from the ends of the earth would know who, who God is and that they would be in God's family. And so Peter was not a part of that initial group. But the fact that in Jesus' ministry, that Peter is the one he speaks about the most. That Peter is the one that we hear from the most in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think because God knew, as he, and Jesus knew as he engaged with Peter, that we would be able to relate to Peter much better than we relate to most other people. Because in reality, Peter was a screw-up. But Peter was also that guy that Jesus leaned into, that he said that, that, you'll, that, that this testimony of your mouth, that you claiming me as the Son of God, that the church will be built on this rock, this foundation. And then later on, just as, as Peter denies Jesus in front of Jesus, as people come and be like, hey, aren't you that guy that hung out with Jesus, a part of his crew? And Peter just passionately was like, no, in fear and in doubt. And how often are we find ourselves like that, where just our passions and our fears kind of collide where we just press against everything that, that, that we are being accused of as far as or even the relatability of our faith in Jesus. And so after all that, when Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus pursues Peter. He comes back to Peter and he says, you're going to lead my people. You're going to lead my sheep. You're going to lead my flock. Like you're going to be a part of what I'm doing. You know, Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other person. In his circle. Peter was the only disciple who ever rebuked Jesus. The audacity, right? And what did Jesus call him? Jesus called him Satan. He said, step back from me, Satan. But Jesus had plans for Peter. Jesus addressed Peter as Satan in front of the disciples. Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple. When Jesus asked him, who do you people say that I am? He said, you're the son of God. Peter denied Jesus more blatantly and publicly than any other disciple. And Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple. And with all this, God used Peter to write to a group of people in the midst of trying times. Because God didn't give up on Peter. God doesn't give up on us. Even in the midst of the times that we live in today, God sees fit to use us. And I think that's what we're going to see as we navigate kind of the consistent themes through 1 Peter. But even as we kind of enter into it, even in this first, these first two verses here, we see Peter's intentions in the midst of that kind of cultural space. And what's so valuable about this is that, in a sense, this is some final words from Peter. Because shortly after writing this in 64 AD, in the midst of the cultural climate that he lived in, Peter would be crucified. And not only would he be crucified, but historians would tell us that Peter would be crucified upside down because he said he was not worthy enough to be crucified the way Jesus was crucified. And so First and Second Peter are kind of the last words that we hear from Peter in regards to just the mission and vision of the Christian faith. 
And so what is happening in this context? And I think it's always important that we kind of lay context for why, what's happening when First Peter is being communicated to these people. And so in this letter written around 64 AD, an emperor named Nero is in command. And this is history. This isn't just biblical fantasy. This is history. An emperor named Nero is in command. He was a man who loved the things of the world. He loved food. He loved art. He loved music. He loved athletics. He loved the idea of the Colosseums and all these things going on. But he was also a wicked man who was selfish. He was prideful. He was driven by fear. So much so that he had his mother and his first wife murdered because he was afraid they were trying to overthrow him. I mean, that's paranoia, right? But this is the kind of man he was because he was only concerned about himself. He was the epitome of the world's culture. Is that he was concerned for himself at the expense of anyone. And so not only do we have this leader leading at this time, but in 64 AD, during this time, a fire would engulf Rome, destroy Rome, pretty much completely demolish it. You know, and, and most historic writers would say that, that he was the one who started it because he wanted to rebuild Rome per his own vision. You know, that he, he wanted to destroy one of the greatest empires, the, 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 the structural environment of the greatest empire in the world at that time, to rebuild it to his own vision. Do you see the audacity of this individual? Like, do you see how what is driving him? And so what happens is in this context... Christians, because he doesn't want to get, people are starting to hear that maybe Nero, because of his kind of wild ideas, he was the one that started this fire that kind of engulfed most of Rome. He wants to deflect that blame. And so what happens is during this time, to avoid the negative attention, he blamed the fire on a growing group of influential people in and surrounding Rome. Can we guess who those people were? They were Christians. Nero blamed this, even though... Historically, Christians had not been rebellious. Christians had not been violent. Christians had not been a people to rise up and try to overthrow anything. Nero deflected. And so what happened? Persecution began. So during this time in 64 AD, when Paul is writing to these people experiencing these things, they were fed to and mauled by dogs. They were murdered in the streets. They were humiliated even to the point that they were lit on fire and left out at night to burn to serve as street lamps and as examples. So what does this have to do with us? The thing that I need to lay, lay very clearly out is I am not claiming us to be near the victims that sometimes as Christians we like to say that we are. You know, there are people all over the world that are very much victims to persecution. You know, we today, and the very little that us as Christians feel some pressure, we are nowhere near experiencing the biblical persecution or the persecution brothers and sisters experience all over the world today that has happened or is happening. Now, what I do want to say is that for us as Christians today, we are navigating an ever-growing state of resistance and rejection in our culture, which is why this series we've called The Outsiders Because I truly believe for us as Christians that we are no longer the beacon of acceptance and hope that we maybe used to be. That we are no longer the the people that are are just kind of grandfathered into certain spaces, whether it be social, political, or whatever it might be, because of just who we are. Church, but in a lot of ways, we are the enemy. 
We are the outsiders to culture. We are no longer at the center of the cultural mandate. And like I said, we're not victims. I'm not claiming us to be victims. This isn't meant for us to have a pity party, and I hope we see that as we move on. But we are seeing that we are being pushed outside of the in crowd. We're no no longer welcome at the cool kids' table. And if you haven't figured that out yet, then you'll quickly figure that out the more that we navigate this space. You know, even in a sense of understanding, even Christians are, are bailing out to a certain extent. It says that even in today, in 2020, that church membership or church, regular church attendance has dropped below 50%, the lowest it's been in like 80 years. And so what I believe 1 Peter teaches us is how to navigate those spaces. And what I think we'll see is just a couple things here this morning. Where we really are as Christians in this current space and what's really been done with us, for us, and through us. I think is the two biggest things that I want us to see from this beginning section. And what I hope that we see how Paul, Peter begins to kind of show us as Christians how to navigate spaces of resistance, of, uh, of, of opposition maybe even at times. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. He introduces himself as is common in these letters. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he begins to speak directly. He says, to those who are elect exiles. Those who are elect exiles. What I believe Peter wants us to see is this first point this morning is where we really are. Those who are elect exiles. Peter starts this letter with a theme that carries through the whole book. And what I think is so unique, and what I hope that you'll see with me, and I hope you don't hear, listen... I, I, I don't get super political. I have my opinions, I have my views, whether it's about politics, whether it's about coronavirus, vaccines, masks, whatever it might be. I have my views, but I don't think this is the place for me to share some of those things with you. And I think that and I believe that because of how Peter starts this letter. Peter starts writing this letter to a people that are in the midst of political turmoil, that, that the government hates them, that the government is doing them no favors and the people around them do not like them. But how does Peter start this letter? Peter does not tell them to arm up. He does not tell them to, to, to rise up. He does not tell them to weapon up. He does not tell them to start burning houses down, start, start rioting. What does he begin to communicate to them? He calls them the elect exiles. He tells them that you are, and this word elect means chosen, select, favorite, or the called out ones. So he's, he says, listen, you've been chosen for a time like this. You've been picked out to be outsiders. You've been drawn out of that space to be different. And listen, we don't always like that. But do we understand that biblically and historically this is where the church is meant to be? I mean, Jesus says in John 15, 18 through 19, He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He says for Christians, when He's speaking to the elect, He's talking about those who have put their faith in Christ, who are in the family of God. God says, you are here because I've chosen you to be here. To be the outsiders. Listen, the problem with modern day Christianity is a lot of it doesn't look much different than the rest of the world. 
And so then for the rest of the body of Christ, as we navigate this space, there becomes this weird kind of balance of what, what are we doing? And so then you feel like that if to be, you have to be on one or two sides when we navigate this space. You either have to be completely like the world as a Christian, or we have to be in complete just opposition in a sense where we just hate and we fight and we wrestle and we push and we argue. But I, I truly believe what, Paul, what Peter is wanting us to see is listen. Where you are is where you're supposed to be. But... It is not a call to rebellion. It is not a call to rise up. It is not a call to break down or to overthrow or to destroy. Listen, he says, the government's not supposed to be on your side. He says, you're the exiles chosen for this time. Because, and we'll get to this. I'm going to start getting ahead of myself if I keep going. Because what he wants us to know when he calls us the elect exiles, you have to understand the word election or this election that he speaks of is a very individualized and very personal thing to each and every one of us. Even though he's communicating about God's people as a whole, God has put them and put us as being the elect into the visible church. And not only that, but this election is meant to communicate a family truth meant to foster the welfare of believers. So when he calls them the elect exiles, it's not only reminding them about where they are, but it's telling them that where you are is where you're supposed to be because you're in the family of God. And God is, is, is because you're chosen for this, God is taking care of this. God is providing in the midst of this. Because for us to be elect exiles, we are where we're supposed to be because God from the beginning has told us that we are the called out. We are the sanctified. You are the holy. You are the drawn out. Not the perfect. Not the all put together. But that as a believer in Jesus that you do look different. You have a different purpose. You have a different drive. You have a different attention that we navigate. First Peter 2.9 that we'll read on and study a little bit deeper later on. He said, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has given us a message. He's given us a purpose. Listen. And that purpose has not been, and, and I say this very delicately, but our purpose in this world is not to fight social issues. Our, wor- our, our place in this world is to not to draw lines on political divides. Our, our world, our purpose in the world has not been to fight for what our, what our view of certain things are. But we so easily have allowed ourselves to identify with certain ideologies that we have forgotten the real reason why we are chosen to be present in this time. It is to preach Jesus Christ and His gospel. That is the most important and the only reason we are elect exiles in this time. That's why Peter, in this moment, he says, listen, don't get caught up in the issues. Now, does it mean that we don't care? Absolutely not. But... Too many of us as Christians and too often the Christian church, we identify ourselves so much with the political divides, the social divides, all these things, that the fact that we're even Christians is lost in the shuffle of all of that. I mean, I see people posting more now about 
social, political, COVID issues to the point that I'm, when did we stop using these platforms to communicate about Jesus? Like, what does it matter? Like, because the reality is a lot of times we're trying to communicate things because it validates our thoughts if we can get other people to agree with us. Man, if we could be that passionate about Jesus, right? about our faith in God, the one who has saved us, the one we've been singing about this morning. And that's why I believe for Peter, in the midst of all this political unrest, he says, hey, to the elect exiles, I need you to know something. For one, calling them elect exiles is him acknowledging that they are displaced, dispersed physically, emotionally, and culturally because God intends for them to be. A.W. Tozer said this, Jesus is not one way of many ways to approach God, nor is He the best of several ways. He is the only way. This message is the most important ideology that we need to communicate. This is the most vital and valuable thing that we have. Does it not mean that we don't get engaged with? No, absolutely not. We engage with the world. We need to know what's going on. But we don't need to be driven by those things. And not only that, that we can't be at a place where we feel like all is lost or we communicate the problem with Christians today is that too often the way we act in this political climate is we act as if Christianity is being defeated. Right? We act as if God doesn't still have the upper hand. And so then we always feel like we've got to make up for what's going on. Like when things are coming down or, 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 or things are happening or governments are making decisions about things. A lot of times we're like, oh my gosh, God's losing his grip on, on what's going on or where we're at. And what does that show the world? Well, your God must not be that much in control if you're that out of whack. But listen... Elect exiles, you are where God wants you to be. And the things that are happening are outside of that space for you. Because what God has for us is a message, this message that will always have us on the outside of culture. The fact that a government is not on our side should not be a surprise to us. Because this message is scandalous. And to add to it in this day and age, the accusations and misrepresentations? I mean, how even applicable is that for us today? The misinformation and misrepresentations of the Christian faith? Why are we surprised about the opposition, the pushback? I mean, just in all honesty, us as Christians haven't done a great job of being an accurate representation of who Christ is and what His church is supposed to be. But even in the midst of that, You know, just like in Nero's time, I mean, Christianity will always be the fall guy. Do we understand that? We're always going to be the ones that, separating from those who poorly represent the church, but just generalized, the church will always be kind of lumped into this category of the bad guys. Because our message is scandalous. Because it doesn't make sense. But what I do believe, church, is that God uses our exile for our growth. That where we really are is the place God wants us to be for our growth. Because God wants us to be in spaces where we're uncomfortable. God wants us to be in spaces where we are the outsider. Because if we are on the outside of culture, we have something better to draw people towards. We have something better to invite people to. We are never meant to sit at the table of culture, to be a guest of honor at the world's party. We are meant to be outsiders, not violent, not argumentative, not hostile, but noticeably different. We are meant to be outside of that space. 
And so not only that, where we are, but then for us, I love how Peter continues this on because he begins to show, listen, if you want to focus in on something, live by something, communicate something, share something with the world around you, if anything is going to change the world, it's not going to be fighting for specific ideologies or certain social issues that, in all honesty, undermine the, the, the gospel. But, he says, what you need to know and what you need to communicate is the second thing this morning, what has really been done. What has really been done for you, through you, and can be done for others. He says, continuing on to the elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Church, what Paul, Peter does, I keep on calling Paul, we've talked about Paul so much. What Peter does here is he lays out so clearly a very, very deep thought about the work of God in salvation in the life of believers. I mean, you, he lays out the work of the Trinity in the life of believers in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of political unrest, in the midst of, uh, of opposition, in the midst of persecution. He says, this is what I want you to know according to what God is doing for you. You are elect exiles. You are where you are. But he wants us to see what he has done for us. This process of God's grace on behalf of sinful man, he says, in the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, the foreknowledge of God, just kind of laying out this idea of God's purpose and plans that prevail all things, that prevail all obstacles, that prevail all opposition, this setting apart, making holy God's people. And that He does that through the Spirit, sanctifying, setting us apart, molding us into the image of God. We see very clearly this idea, this kind of uh, the, the Trinity played out in Father, Spirit, and Son, and what it does in the life of a Christian. He says, this is what I need you to know, and this is what I need you to bring to the world in just complete disarray around you, is God's knowledge in the midst of your exile, God's knowledge in the midst of your doubt, God's knowledge of who you are, of what you've done, of where you're going, and the plans that he has. All of that is kind of encompassed in the foreknowledge of God. Not only where you are currently, but who you've been and where you're going. And in the midst of that, God still has chosen you. Do you see the grace of God making itself evident in the lives of these people? And what Peter is really bringing home and wanting them to see here. In Romans 11.2, Paul says this, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? How can they appeal to God against Israel? He says, do you not know God takes care of? Hold on to those who He foreknew, those who He has known, those who are His elect, those who are chosen, those who are brought in because of their faith in Jesus, that if we've chosen Him, He's chosen us and brought us into the family of God, and that He has purposes, plans that prevail all things. And it doesn't matter. I love that Peter is writing to them in the midst of persecution. And what does he tell them? Man, that God has done a work in you. God has done a work for you and that He still is working. And not only that, but to this, He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Not only speaking of Christ's obedience on the cross, but also the, the command for us to step forward into the work that He has for us because of our salvation. 
This work doesn't bring us into His plan and, and make us holy, but this work is a reflection of His plan and His work of making us holy. We were not chosen because of your resume, because of who you are, who you've been. That if you've put your faith in Jesus, you've been chosen because of who Jesus was. And that He's invited us into this space. These themes are going to continue to present themselves through 1 Peter. And in the midst of of all the opposition, in the midst of the resistance, in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of everything coming down on the Christians in this time, and for us in our political climate as we are the outsiders, not at the cool kids' table anymore, God reminds us at the table that we do sit at. He says the table that you do sit at is the Father God of Heaven who sent His only Son Jesus to die on a cross for you. And it doesn't matter what other table you're excluded from. The table that you are included in is the greatest place you could ever be. And that's the table that the people at that table we want to invite to. We want to go to the cool kid table and we want to say, Hey, listen, I know this one seems really great, but I have a table, I have a seat for you next to me at the greatest place you could ever be. That there's a Father in Heaven that the Bible tells us is more concerned for you than the greatest earthly father could be. That there's a man named Jesus Christ that came 100% God, 100% man, and bore my sin and shame and died on the cross, bearing my guilt, bearing my penalty, and that there is a Spirit at work in my heart that holds me together. That even when I feel like things are breaking apart, when I feel like I've failed, when I feel like shame and guilt and sorrow want to overwhelm me, that the Spirit of God within me reminds me of who I am. And reveals to me the truths of His purposes for me and with me. God did not choose us because of our resume. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says this. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it was written, let no one boast, but bo- let the one who boasts, I'm sorry, boast in the Lord. And then 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He who saved us, and called us to, holy, to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That sprinkling that He says there at the end is reminding us of a new covenant. Not a covenant of works. Not a covenant of accomplishments. The covenant of grace. That God took our sin and shame and died on the cross. The promise that God through Jesus' death on the cross and all He took for us to have, all that what God would do for His people is communicated there. That God's redeemed His people and renewed His people. And for what? And He ends this intro, this kind of welcome. He ends it with why He has saved us and what He has saved us for. He says in verse, the end of verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace for what? And I believe it's this. The grace to know who we are in Jesus 
and the peace to step into the world with confidence and assurance. That it doesn't matter what's going on around us. It doesn't matter the, the, the resistance. It doesn't matter the, the pressure that we feel as Christians. That we know by the grace of God who we are and that we have the peace to step into the spaces that He's called us to. Because for us as Christians, and why I believe Paul, Peter, Peter begins this letter this way, is because I think our nature as Christians is to retreat, is to bail out of culture, especially when the cultural climate presses in around us, when we see resistance. You know, a lot of our mentalities is if we're, if we're on social media and there are people on social media that don't agree with us, we don't, we don't engage with them or we block them. We say, you know, see it all the time. Well, my friends list just got about 20 people shorter because all these people that have different views than I do. And so our natural response as Christians is to push people away who don't agree with us, to seclude ourselves. And that is called bomb shelter Christianity, where we, we kind of become reclusive. We kind of separate ourselves in a way where I don't want to engage with people who don't agree with me. I don't want to talk to them. I can't be friends with them. I can't have conversations with them. They have no part in my life because they, they view things differently than me. So then we, see, we kind of seclude ourselves to our bomb shelter Christianity. And if it's not that view, then we approach it with the ultimate fighter Christianity view. Where everybody's the enemy that I need to defeat. That everyone needs to be just blasted. Everyone needs to be aggressively dismantled. I need to break to pieces everything that they ever say or ever do. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time we want that to happen publicly on social media or some space because it makes us feel better about ourselves if people see us dismantle other people and their views or whatever. Our arguments are better than theirs, whatever. Good for you. Because in reality, like we said, it all comes back to our pride if, if we're honest. We want to feel better about our views. It doesn't mean that, I mean, as a Christian, I believe my views are, are I mean, we said it. A.W. Tozer said it. Our message is the one and only message. Jesus isn't one of many ways. He's the only way. But the only way the culture around us, this, this, this resistant culture that we live in, us being the outsiders, the only way that they're going to hear that message and know it is if we engage with the culture. You can engage with the culture without becoming the culture. And that's what God's called us to do. Not to be bomb shelter Christians, not to be ultimate fighter Christians, but a people engaging in our spaces of influence. God has put you in a very specific place for a very specific reason to be influential in that space. Maybe as teachers, administrators, plant workers, railroad, whatever it is that you do. That God has put you in those spaces to be influential. And listen, I pray that it's with people that disagree with you. I pray that it's with people that have different views as you. Because what's the point of our message if we haven't surrounded ourselves with people who desperately need to hear it? That's what Peter is saying here. He's telling them this is who you are and this is where you are because of what God's done for you so that you can have the grace of God to carry you and the peace of God to engage with it. You don't have to have everybody on your side. But what we do is we enter into those personal spaces. And we hope and pray, God, let there be a window of opportunity to have a conversation. Now, does it, does, am I saying that we can't always be passive? Absolutely not, because I think in a lot of situations we need to be more, more forward. But still, that requires us to be present with people. That requires us to not shut every person in our life off that disagrees with what our view is. Can you disagree with someone and still love them? Yes. Me and my wife disagree sometimes, and I still love her. Don't tell her I said that. 
But we need to have people in our lives. Even, you know, I, we talk about this even with our leadership team at the church. I pray to surround myself with people that, that don't always just agree with everything me or the other leaders say. What good is that? Maybe we even view certain things differently. And that's okay. Because what good do we do a diverse group of people that we're either ministering to within the church or outside of the church if the church is being led by a lot of people that have the exact same viewpoint on certain things? Now, are there hills to die on? Absolutely. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the fights and arguments we're having are not hills to die on. The reasons we push a lot of people out of our lives because they disagree with us are not hills worth dying on. Church, we are not called to defeat the world, to hide from the world, or to be liked or accepted by the world. But we are called to be different. We are called to be set apart. And we are called to be present. Not for us to escape the world, but to be a place the world can escape. That they can escape to when they realize their need for salvation, for refuge, for redemption, and for rescue. Church, the worst thing that we can do for a drowning world is to take the life raft and row away. The worst thing we can do for the world is take the raft and row away. Listen, it's not going to be easy. And we're not always going to be happy with it. We're not always going to be the most liked. We're not always going to be the one who always makes people feel comfortable. Because listen, your presence as a believer in Jesus is going to make people uncomfortable. I have family members that in their presence, I know that I make them uncomfortable. And I don't do that on purpose. And listen, there's not going to be anything we can do to help that. But that's not a guilt within us. That's something maybe God is doing within them. And they're only going to have that influence if we allow ourselves to be present in their lives. And have that life raft available. Let us be the escape. Let's not escape. Let, let's let us be the refuge. Come. Come here. Because they're going to have a time. Of, they're going to have a time in their life if we allow ourselves to be present, whether it takes five minutes or five years of friendship, that there's going to be a point in their life when the Spirit of God begins to do that work. And they're going to start to look around for a life raft. Where do I go? There's something off. You know, for somebody like Tom Brady to say, I've won as many Super Bowls as I've won, and I still feel like I haven't accomplished anything in life. It's because he still needs something. And he needs people like that, need people around him that say, hey, I can tell you why you're still searching. Because you're looking for fulfillment in the wrong places. You're looking for purpose in the wrong places. And if Christians bail out of culture, then we've neglected our influence. Listen, and it's not going to be easy. We're going to get ridiculed? Yes. You're going to get excluded and persecuted? Yes. You're going to be a fall guy for culture and for social and political issues? Yes. And some of that stuff... You know, I think that's where that's more so where I think we see the turn the other cheek happening because sometimes we're going to take the we're going to take the rap for it on a big scale. But the hope is that as individual Christians that we can lean into the lives of people and to be able to show them and reveal to them who Jesus is, what the church really is supposed to be. Listen, that's not going to be realized by the church at large. 
people watching televangelists and watching us online and watching other people online, they're not going to see the picture of who Christ really is and what the church is really meant to do. They're only going to see that through you. They're not going to even see that through listening from me. Because listen, they expect me to say a lot of things. They expect me to talk about the Bible and to say certain things. I mean, in a lot of ways, I wish that they knew who I was in my personal life because I'm not perfect and I would never try to be. But because of me and what I do and who I am, they're going to expect certain things from me. So listen, in your life, and in your influence, they need to hear things from you. They need to hear, they'll see who Jesus really is because of what you say to them. And listen, don't get discouraged by the climate. That's where we're supposed to be. We're the outsiders. And that's not, we're not saying that in a pity. We're saying that in celebration. Because we want to be different. We want to have, be the outside escape for the people that desperately need something bigger than what this world has. And have the confidence and peace to step into that knowing that God's going to provide. Psalm 105, 43. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen, we live in and navigate the most exclusive, inclusive group there is. It's exclusive in a sense of that it's the only way to God, but it's inclusive that all are welcome. All are welcome. And the people in your life, in the cultural spaces that you navigate, social media or even physically, they need your influence. They don't need your influence about your ideology, political or social. They need your influence about Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done and what He wants to do in their life. That's the people God's called us to be. That's the people He's called us to be. So church, can we, can we bow our heads this morning? And I know a lot of this seems very general, but I pray that, that you can start to kind of, even right now, begin to pray and ask God to reveal to you in your cultural space, where can you be influential? Where can you begin to stop? Maybe, maybe you have, maybe you've stiff-armed people in your life that disagree with you. How can you maybe enter in back into that space and begin to be influential? Maybe dialogue, calmly dialogue, and be able to accept if someone disagrees with you for a moment. Praying that as you continue that dialogue, not about trying to convince them, because listen, if we can talk somebody into something, others can talk them out of it. They need to be convinced by God about their status, about their place in this world, about their views, about certain social and political issues, God will be the one to make that shift. The most important message that people in our lives need is about who Jesus is and what He's done. That is the battle He's called us to fight. That is the battle He's fighting on our behalf. So can we pray this morning to really begin to embrace the grace and peace, the grace to know who we are and the peace to step into those spaces in our world, in our schools, in our jobs, in our families, to have the confidence that we need to be those people. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank You for who You are. God, I thank You for what You've given us. God, the, the, the Lord, I, I pray and I thank You for this time in our world. God, it would seem crazy to be thankful for a world that's just a mess. But God, this is our time. 
You have chosen us for a time like this. You've called us to be separate from the culture, from the world for a time like this, that as everything falls to pieces, as people and places and things are divided on, on, on hard lines, Father God, I pray that you would allow your church to be a beacon of hope in the midst of those spaces, God. That we would be a beacon of hope in the midst of struggle, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of turmoil. God, as families and people and sickness and all these things are so rampant, Father God, that I pray the church would be a present person, a present people navigating these spaces with the world around us. God, help us to be able to enter into the spaces of people who disagree with us. Not to, not to be compliantly accepting, but to engage. God, to love. God, to be able to show them and to kind of enter into conversation with them, hoping that the Spirit of God will use us. God, to show them that our goal as Christians is to bring glory to God and to do good for others. And Lord, that that is the task that you've given us. And Lord, will it bring persecution? Yes. Will it bring hurt and exclusion? Yes. But Father God, I pray that you give us the grace and peace to step into those spaces. God, and, and if we're here, and Lord, we have not truly entered into that space with you, putting our faith in you, becoming a part of that family, to even begin to navigate that grace and peace, Father God, I pray. Lord, you tell us to come, laying our burdens at your feet, acknowledging our need of a Savior. Lord, and that you'll save us. Not by our works, not by our resume, but by who you are. Father God, I pray for your forgiveness for our sins. Father, I pray that you would, Lord, just empower us and give us the courage and strength it takes to move forward into the world around us. Not for our own agendas, but God, for yours. Father, we love you. God, we just praise you and thank you. Lord, we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.